Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, January 14th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squatran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. Okay. So this is another water cooler episode. Let's just get into it. Let's uh, start with what we've been doing I, this past week, presented the Best Animated Feature Award to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse at the Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society Awards. Um, I mentioned on Twitter I was nervous about this because I am not a guy that likes speaking in front of large crowds. Uh, But luckily, my team here uh, was able to help me craft a good speech with some, some jokes. Brad, people laughed at your Lady Gaga joke, and uh, it, it was a it was a good experience. And I got to meet two of the directors of my favorite film of last year, which was amazing. Um, it was a good night had by all. Uh, it was uh, Brie Larson accepted a Trailblazer Award uh, for her fight for diversity and film criticism, and I got to meet uh, the director of Searching, who Ben has spent some time with at this point right <laughs> yes, yes yeah uh he mentioned you uh and john cho and a b- bunch of other people but anyways uh so that's what i i spent uh one day last week doing uh also actually last week on the podcast before we started recording i believe maybe it's in the podcast i don't know uh we were talking about how we prepare for the water cooler and what i generally do do is throughout the week I have a notes app and I just whenever I watch something or do something I take a note of it or maybe leave notes of like what I think of a movie or or whatnot just so that when the water cooler comes around I have you know notes of you know I don't have to remember I have bad memory and um last week HT mentioned that she does she has like a thing called a bullet list or bullet uh, bullet journal journal. yeah what is a bullet journal so a bullet journal is basically a uh, 
combined um, journal, checklist, diary, anything you really want it to be, a calendar as well. And the thing is, a bullet journal is mostly meant to be like on paper and a blank notebook in which you can design and um, structure it in any way you want. I've been bullet journaling since last year. And uh, I really enjoyed it because it's helped me just to like keep track of like my work and like my daily, just what I need to do. Like I don't forget birthdays and stuff. And I also use it as a sort of journal and sometimes like write down, I don't know, shower thoughts or something. So it's a multi-purpose tool <laughs> yeah. and I really liked it. And so I was talking about how I, I didn't remember what I did that week, but I checked my bullet journal and I had like, you know, little bullet points and notes about what I'd done that week and little thoughts that I had had that week as well, as well as just kind of reactions to films that I sometimes jot down um, instead of updating my letterbox as I should. So, um, <laughs> I, that's why I really yeah. enjoy the bullet journal. Actually, writing it down helps me retain a lot of things. Uh, well, not last week, apparently, but usually it helps me retain a lot of things rather than looking at a screen all the time. Yeah. Well, uh, this partially inspired me not to get an actual bullet journal because my handwriting sucks so much that if I went to look at it a week later, I probably wouldn't know what it said. So I was looking for a digital version of this, and they make a lot of bullet journal apps uh, for the iPhone and stuff. Uh, the one I settled on was this app called Day One. Oh, and also, I should also mention another reason this inspired me is every week I've been writing these notes, and then I just delete it at the end of the week of like all the stuff I'm doing. I'm like, if I'm writing this anyways, why not have a record of this that I can look back at in years to come because I have just a horrible memory. And an, uh, another podcast I listen to is Sunday School with uh, Penn Jillette, uh, the magician but uh, and also political commentator. And he, I think since high school, has kept a journal on his computer. And every, so every day, I think at the end of the day, he writes an entry. He spends like 10 minutes to write an entry. And every morning... He looks at the journal from the year before, I think 10 years before and then 20 years before. And he gets like a sense, like he gets to relive those moments. And also like, you know, if he, he met someone 10 years ago that day, like he'll send them a letter, you know, an email or something. And I was like, that's a really cool concept. I, w I wish I had been doing that. So I downloaded this app uh, day one, which basically has the functionality of anything like uh it, it could be what you're saying uh ht and that it could just be bullet points you could actually leave audio notes there you can take photos you can do more extensive journaling but uh from now on that is how i'm going to be keeping track of this water cooler podcast and also it's going to uh be a record for me to go back and relive these memories in years to come hopefully uh so i just wanted to mention that if anybody if that sounds appealing to anybody there the app is called day one i think it's free uh if you want like they have like a pro thing to it but uh you could basically use it for free um also this week i went and saw actually last night i went and saw wicked at the pentagious theater and i've never seen wicked you know, obviously, I, I knew it existed, and we've reported for years of a movie uh, possibly coming to the big screen. I, actually, I did a search uh, right before this podcast, and I think we we are the top result saying that like it's still in the works, and that was from a couple months ago. And um, uh, this is obviously the kind of revisionist prequel to. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, and I'm sure a lot of people out there have probably seen this by now. Who here has seen this uh, play? I have. You have. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, I'm also... You what? 
I've also seen it. You've also seen it. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm like one of the last people on earth, but uh, apparently according to this podcast, it's like, uh, what is this? Uh, three out of six have seen it. <laughs> so that's like 50%, right? Good 50%. Um, uh, so, um, one of my friends offered me some really good tickets, uh, like last week. So I kind of jumped on it and these were like six rows, like perfect center. They're actually the tickets that the cast gets to purchase and give, uh, to their friends. So, so it was like, a, like the best seats you could possibly have for this. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't, I, I kind of got the idea that Wicked was kind of be going to kind of be like, um, I guess Maleficent, which I guess copied Wicked, um, but I didn't really expect that the first half of this play was going to be almost like Hogwarts. It takes place in this wizarding school, and it's a, kind of a, a, a story set in, uh, I guess, university. Um, the sets and productions are all steampunk. Oz itself looks like, I guess, like the production brainchild of the Wachowskis and Tim Burton. Um, I... Actually, a few weeks ago in the mailbag, we were t- oh, someone asked us a question about why why are people so um, hard on prequels and sequels and remakes in the the film world, while in the theater world, people embrace that more, like they embrace a revival. And I, while watching this, I was kind of thinking that because this is, you know partially a prequel to the wizard of oz and it does have a lot of those like obvious callbacks and references that i think we would groan and roll our eyes at if it happened in a movie you know like for example in rise of the planet of the apes when tom felton's character reiterates the infamous line from sheldon heston like i feel like this musical has a ton of those kind of things yet somehow is is good um i'm wondering if if it's just we we judge these on different levels uh i mean this does this story does you know it it kind of reveal you know it's the if you think of a prequel and what you hate about prequels it's in concept it's everything we hate about prequels you know we learn how the monkeys fly we learn where the wicked witch uh gets her hat and cape we learn how the lion becomes cowardly we learn how the tin man loses his heart like everything is explained and that sounds horrible but it's done in such a clever interesting fun way and at the core of the story is this like lovely unlikely friendship between glinda and the wicked witch uh and it's a story about an outsider that's very relatable, and um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's strangely relevant because that, that there's also, like, this subplot with a political leader using deception to rally the land, um, which can be kind of uh, echoed in our current uh, world. Uh, production value uh, – projection design was amazing. Uh, there was, like, this gigantic – dragon like steampunk dragon that like overlooked the stage and oz was this gigantic metallic puppet um and uh, i was lucky enough to go backstage after the performance and meet uh the two leads and uh my friend brian markinson who invited me on this uh this adventure uh was performing some magic tricks for them because he's obviously a magician and uh they were coming to the magic castle tomorrow uh or today i guess um but uh, i don't know 
if you ever have a chance to see Wicked, it's now playing at the Pantages. Uh, I highly recommend it. I know this is like, I feel like what I'm saying here is kind of like, you know, if you ever have the chance to watch Citizen Kane or like, you know, like some kind of like old classic that everybody's already seen. But uh, but there you have it. So that's what I've been up to. Brad, what have you been doing? Um, so this isn't really anything all that thrilling, but I just wanted to put it put it out here just to discuss it here because I'm thinking about getting a Nintendo Switch sometime, maybe here in the near future, only because I just recently saw uh, a story that it looks like they found in the like the code for like uh, an update for the Switch that their Switch Online will soon likely have access to um nearly two dozen super nintendo games and a lot of them are the games that were available on the snes classic uh which is something i haven't bought yet though i was inclined to maybe try to get because it has some great super nintendo classics like super mario kart and star fox uh some kirby games and um just just stuff like that and like i don't know this the switch is getting more and more enticing all the time especially now that super smash brothers ultimate is out there and I just, I, I don't know, like, Jacob, you have a Switch, right? And, like, I don't know if anybody else has a Switch, but, like, is it is it worth it? Should I do it? Uh, yeah, Ben has one as well, so you can speak to this. Uh, but, first of all, with, with the Switch, you get access to all the new first-party Nintendo games, which are all spectacular for the most part. Uh, and they're also bringing over a lot of the great Wii U games that nobody played because nobody bought a Wii U. So, in addition to all the first-party Nintendo games, the Switch is apparently very easy to port games to. So, so many great indie games are making their way to the Switch. The library uh, is just jam-packed full of incredible things that I never thought I'd be able to play uh, outside my PC. You know, here they are, games like Undertale and This War of Mine and just all these really incredible games. And there's a lot of junk in the shop, too. But if you're interested in, one, first-party Nintendo games and, two, like, really fascinating small games from, like, you know, non-major developers, uh, it is worth the money i i use my switch every single day it, it, it's funny because nintendo systems generally are thought of is like if if you're gonna the only reason you want to buy it is for the first party games and this is totally changing things around yeah it's, it's the first the first nintendo console ever to uh openly support third-party developers this way like it's why the gamecube and the wii uh didn't have a lot of great third-party games whereas microsoft and sony flourished with all these amazing companies who are working with them Whereas now you have, you can play the new Doom on the Nintendo Switch, which never would have happened on Nintendo console ten years ago. Uh, the Switch is really it's proving Nintendo is opening its arms for the first time in its history ever to think lots of companies saying, "Hey, come make games uh, for our system." Very cool. Uh, so should so Brad should buy it? Is what you're saying? I vote yes. What say you, Ben? Yeah, I think so, too. You get way more use out of it. I, I have it just as sort of like a novelty kind of thing because my primary system is my PlayStation 4. But I do enjoy playing, you know, Mario and, and Zelda and those sort of top tier Nintendo titles and having having the ability to do that. So, yeah, I, I don't have it as like my primary console. But um, but yeah, it's I mean, it's a great system. Ben, what have you been doing? Uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to. A, a web series called Schmatz, which actually uh, I was just looking this up. It's not even available right now yet, but I went to the premiere of it. My friend uh, created this series and stars in it. And um, he and his, the people who put this web series together rented out a theater in Burbank on Friday night and had, you know, 150 people or something uh, come and check out this this thing. They, they screened an hour's worth of episodes from the first season of the show, which I think is like 
you know, like eight or 10 episode, uh, 20, 30 minute uh, <laughs> kind of thing. And it's just these guys, you know, friends of mine who put on a show. It's a, it's a very L.A. thing. Like, oh, yeah, I went to the premiere of my friend's web series. So uh, <laughs> I just wanted to uh, to throw out, you know, a, a quick uh, shout out to Schmotts, which is S C H M O T T S. You can check out schmotts.com for what, more information on that. But wait, what um, is Schmotts about? Yeah, the premise is this girl named Stephanie moves back into her mom's home and she's estranged with her mother. And uh, her mother has married uh, this guy named Gary Schmotts, who is like the most obnoxious person that you could possibly imagine. And that's who my friend Matt plays in the show. Um, so they're they're ta- they're in talks with people right now to maybe sell it. Um, they're, they're trying to look to see if they can get distribution and stuff like that. If they can't, they're just going to end up putting it out online for free. So I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to that. Uh, if anybody's interested in in some good comedy, it's I mean, uh, honestly, I'm not just saying this because my friend is in it, but I laughed, uh, you know, in those first three episodes that we watched, I laughed more in those than I have in a lot of like major studio comedies over the past couple years outside of maybe like Game Night and Blockers or something. But um, yeah, anyway, so there you go. Schmatz.com. Very cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. And Jacob, you are the only person on staff that has been reading anything this week. What have you been reading? Yeah, I'm reading a, a book that Chris talked about either last week or the week before, and that is The Sopranos Sessions by Matt Nazaler Seitz and Alan Steppenwall. And this, this month is the 20th anniversary of Sopranos premiering, and this book is just an extremely in-depth breakdown of the whole series. There are chapters dedicated to each episode, uh, new interviews with series creator David Chase, a, even a, a chapter that's just a like 20-page long back-and-forth discussion about the show's ending between uh, Zola Zeiss and Steppenwall. And if you're a fan of the show, this is a must-read. Like The analysis is fantastic. I mean, these two are the best TV writers in the business in terms of people who recap TV and analyze TV. And I own their previous books. Uh, Zola Zeiss previously wrote a Mad Men book, and Steppenwall wrote a... Breaking Bad book. They both collaborated on two other books, uh, I believe, in the past that are also very good. And it, it, it's just a treat to read. Like whether you just like want to binge through it all, or like maybe rewatch an episode and you know read the essay to sort of soak it in. It is, uh, it is it's a treat. It is a genuine treat. I keep hope these two keep on writing more books, analyzing all the great you know shows of the peak TV era because literally nobody does it better and this book is a bargain and if you're like me and you're preparing for a sopranos rewatch this is will arm you to to appreciate an amazing show even further uh i also have been reading uh prepare for to prepare for the new movie coming out uh next month i've been reading battle angel alita which is being turned into alita battle angel new rob rodriguez movie being produced by james cameron and i'm reading the original manga uh by yukito kishiro and so far, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It is, you know, very straightforward, very simple. Uh, not a lot of complexity. I don't know if, I don't know if it's going to change if that'll happen in later volumes. But right now, it's very much a very simple story of amnesic robot um, is rescued by scientists. Amnesic robot decides to become good guy hero and punch a lot of other robots. And so far, it's I really like the characters, as straightforward and simple as they are. I love the art. Uh, he, uh, Kishiro has a real eye for action and a real eye for like depicting speed uh, of these robots or cyborgs I should be more specific and uh, it's very very Japanese in, 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 in the ways you expect you know a early 90s uh, manga series to be but um, I'm, I'm digging it I'm, I, I'm looking forward to seeing this world brought to life by Rob Rodriguez hopefully it you know lives up to what's on the page 
Uh, I'm wondering if I know HT is our resident uh, expert when it comes to all kinds of anime and manga. Have you read this one or watched any adaptations of it, HD? Uh, this actually is something that is a gap in my knowledge. I've never seen Alita, and it was, I think, a little early for me before I got really into the anime manga thing. When I was in the in the 90s, I was only basically just watching Sailor Moon and, and Pokemon, so I didn't get the chance to get around to this yet. And, well, it, it, it's very good. <laughs> I'll leave it there. I was going to say, and apparently, I was not expecting this, but the movie, people liked the movie. I don't want to turn this into like a news segment and do the early buzz, but we we ran a piece on the the first reactions from this film, and I've even talked to a couple of people who saw it, and both of them say it's a really good sci-fi movie. That's so. really cool to hear. I know that um, I know that Rodriguez made so many bad movies in the past ten years, but I know that the studio and Cameron and the producer, uh, John Landau sort of kept him on a tight leash throughout this entire production. Wouldn't let him go off and do his usual, <laughs> his usual, like, oh, I'm going to do everything. They made him like, you know, be a director and they made him hire a full crew and made him, you know, focus in a way that I don't think he's focused in a long, long time. So I'm very excited. Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been watching. I'll start things off uh, and talk about M. Night Shyamalan's Glass, which I saw at a press screening last week. I am a huge fan of Unbreakable, and I was, uh, you know, I have been excited for an Unbreakable sequel for for years now. But I, I will admit that the trailers for this movie did not have me excited. It looked like everything took place in, like, two rooms. And uh, sadly, after seeing this movie, I can confirm that that is the case. Uh, you know, Blumhouse produced this movie, and it really was filmed in, like, maybe, like, five locations. It, it's really small and feels really low budget. Uh, it, You know, this, mo- this movie gave me some some waves of emotion. Like, the beginning of the movie is really strong, and then there's a period where I'm like, this is boring, to this is bullshit, to, oh, this is awesome again. So it like, kept on going up and down, but uh, sadly, and I don't want to spoil this in any way, but sadly, I feel like the, the ending is a complete mess. Uh, I feel like if they had, if he had a few weeks to reshoot some things, I feel like this movie could have been saved but I was just uh, overall like so disappointed in this movie. It has some really cool shots. It uh, has some cool ideas to it that I don't think really work. It has some unexpected twists. I mean, it is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And uh, I feel the last couple felt cheap and the payoff was very disappointing. Uh, Chris, I know you also saw this film. What did you think of Glass? Uh, I hated it. Um, I am a I'm a huge M Night fan. Uh, I think Unbreakable is his best movie, so I was really looking forward to this. I, I liked Split too. I don't think Split is one of his best movies, but it, it's very well made for what it is. So I was I was looking forward to this, and man, oh man, uh, I, I was so excited about this. Actually, I hopped on a train and went to New York to see it. So I took a uh, basically a two hour trip to go see this movie and it was not worth it because I I was just depressed watching it. it you know, this this isn't one of those things where the movie is so bad and I can just be like, oh, fuck this movie. It just it made me sad just how disappointing this is. And it, it made me like 
start to question all of my choices over the past few years where I've been like a staunch M night defender. Even when most people gave up on him, I was, I was there. I was beating the drum. I was like, no, he's, he's still really good. You know, a lot of people hated uh, the village. I think the village is fantastic. And even when he did make bad stuff, I was like, you know, he's, he's, he's still got it. He's going to have a comeback. And he sort of did have the comeback with the visit and split. And now it, it's like gone all over again. So I don't, I don't even know what happened. I don't, I don't know how he, you know, he seemed like he was finally getting his mojo back. And then this movie completely shits the bed. And it does so in such a way that it, it ruins unbreakable for me a little bit, because now anytime I watch unbreakable, I'm going to have to think about this movie, specifically about how this movie ends. And without, you know, again, without Chris, giving away spoilers, you, you become the Star Wars fanboys, I guess. But like, yeah, the, like the way this movie ends is it's like offensive to me as a fan of Unbreakable. It's like he's M-Light's literally saying like, oh, you liked Unbreakable? Too bad. Here's this terrible ending. And it just really disappointed me, man. And uh, I, I can't get over how bad it is i really think this is actually like his worst film granted i have not seen his his last airbender but of all the films of his i've seen i've seen this is the one i dislike the most ben i know you also saw this because i saw you and amy at the screening what did you think of glass oh man yeah i'm right there with both of you this movie is not great and i'm disappointed but not nearly as heartbroken as chris i actually rewatched unbreakable uh, for the first time since probably like 2003 or four, right before the glass screening. And I, I, I'll, I guess I'll talk about that movie in, in just a minute. But um, it's just it's night and day. The quality of <laughs> between those two movies, it's it almost feels like there's no way this could have come from the same filmmaker. It's just so that that difference is so distinct. Um, I think there are some really, really terrible, cringeworthy moments in glass like M. Night's. Uh, cameo in Glass is one of the most embarrassing things I've seen in a mainstream movie in a long time because of the the logical leap that it asks us to make uh, as an audience. And um, man, this uh, yeah, this I mean, I, I guess we don't need to just like spend more time crapping on this movie, but it is anybody who's you know spent the past. 18, 19 years being excited about the sequel, just uh, temper your expectations as much as humanly possible because I, I don't think it's going to live up to them. I feel like M. Night Shyamalan, I was so excited for him as a filmmaker in his first few movies, and I'm, I'm wondering what it is. Like, do you think it like do you think it's that he was given complete creative control of this and there's nobody to say no and there's nobody to collaborate with him? Like I feel like he puts himself, you know, he films all his stuff in like what, Philly? And like he's like so away from the the studio system, which I, I guess, you know, works for Pixar. Um it works for some uh filmmakers. But for him, like I feel like the lack of of anybody telling him that something stupid or sucks is, is what's hurting him. And also, like, it, it's weird because watching this movie, it almost feels like a movie that, like, came out in, like, the early 90s. Like, there's, like, it almost feels like M. Night Shyamalan doesn't watch modern-day films and doesn't know how things are subtly introduced. And, like, there's, like, I don't know. It, it, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? <sighs> I think 
I don't think it's that he has complete control because he's had complete control for a while and he was doing good things. Like I think signs is a, a wonderfully crafted movie and he had complete control on that. And I think even unbreakable, he had a, a very uh, strong amount of control after the sixth sense was a huge hit. I honestly think his fall from grace has like soured him a little bit because if you watch, if you compare glass to unbreakable, Glass is a much like meaner, nastier movie. It has this really like angry streak to it. Whereas Unbreakable, even though it has darkness in it, there's like this hopeful ending. And I kind of think like just years of you know his career slowly trending downward has turned him into this sort of bitter guy where he he doesn't have what it takes anymore to tell you know what what made his early movies so great. You know, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, even Signs is. There's there's this like light shining underneath the darkness, and he doesn't seem like he's making that anymore. Like even though I like the visit and split, both of those movies are really really unpleasant, and this is the most unpleasant movie he's made yet. So I kind of think you know the bad reviews have just soured him and turned him into sort of sort of like a nasty guy. And it's sad too because I feel like there are moments in this movie, and in all of his films, so like you could still see the genius that is lying within M night Shyamalan, but I don't know. I, so I guess this is a three for three. None of us recommend this film, right? Although James McAvoy is really amazing playing, you know, multiple roles with his, like uh what is it called? A dissociative identity, identity disorder or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I think there was a lot of, uh, uh, controversy about whether or not it's actually a real thing. And I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but um, you know, the, the, whatever transformer, Yeah. The, the transformative nature of that performance is still really, really impressive. And I think that's the highlight of the movie by far. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, I, you know, a few months back I was looking at reviews for TV shows as I often do. I, I go through like IMDb and see like, what's the highest rated TV shows that are out now that I'm like, it's not on my radar. And there was this show called you, which was on, I think, Lifetime, which I did not get. I have PlayStation View. I think it was on True TV. True TV? Oh, yes. For some reason, I thought it was Lifetime. Okay. Uh, whatever it was, it was a channel that I did not get, but people were kind of raving about this kind of uh, – this show. And uh, even though it had it was highly uh, critically acclaimed, uh, it got canceled by whatever network it was. And Netflix picked it up, and they are doing a second season of this show. Uh, so it, it is now on Netflix, and I got a chance to binge watch it over the weekend. We watched all 10 episodes. Uh, this is uh, a story about a guy who meets – he, he runs a bookstore in New York City, and a girl comes into the a woman comes into the bookstore and they kind of have this flirty uh, interaction and it, uh, it seems like they're very compatible. It starts almost like any romantic comedy. It's like the meet cute. And uh, it turns out that uh, this guy basically he's a stalker and uh, but he's a nice stalker. He's a, he's a stalker you can empathize with for some reason. <laughs> Uh, I guess it's a kind nice of stalker. I, I, yeah, no, no, <laughs> uh, no, it's like Dexter. It's played in the way of Dexter. Like Dexter is out killing people, but it's okay because they're bad people. <laughs> Do you know what I 
okay. Well, I'm saying it starts out like that. It starts out like you can, uh, even though, you know, he uh, he gives a neighbor's kid his meal when coming home. He, he helps an old lady hail a cab. Uh, it, uh, he's a nice stalker. So, uh, anyways, this, the series kind of follows him in his attempt to try to orchestrate a relationship between him and this woman. Like, uh, but, um, you know, she's kind of like a magnet for douchebags. Like, uh, the, the boyfriend she's with is cheating on her. And, you know, it's just like, like it's just like he's going to fix her, which I, I completely understand is. 100% problematic and I think the show gets into that later on uh, the uh, I'm trying to think in the first episode alone and you know skip 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this the first episode alone he internet stalks her he follows her around watching her routine he finds a way to sneak into her home look through her things and computer he steals her phone and he assaults the douchebag cheating boyfriend <laughs> with a hammer so that happens all in one episode. Uh, I'll say this show, uh, and I did mention Dexter. One of the directors did uh, that did a few episodes of this also did Dexter. Uh, half of the episodes were directed by female directors, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, this uh, is a, this is a guilty pleasure show. It's it, it's fun trash. It is trash, but it's fun trash. It kind of has this Gone Girl kind of dark humor vibe. Um, it might be because it has a voiceover from the main character and, uh, it's, um, I mean, if you like shows like Scandal and you like fun twists and turns, this is a, a show for you. And it's a show that is very, you know, it's, it's like candy. It's, it's like popcorn. You can just like, you know, down it in a night. Like this is, uh, some of it's bad. Some of it's so bad. It's good. And some of it's actually good. Um, and the ridiculous and absurdity kind of ratchets up as you go along, but it's, it, I, I recommend this to everybody. Actually, I, I, I actually want HT to watch this because I want to get your, like, I know you love romantic comedies and this kind of starts off like a romantic comedy and it's so problematic for many reasons. I'm I'm very curious to hear your take on it. Uh, Yeah. I've heard mixed, I've actually heard things about this some mixed things um for like all the reasons that you're saying also i want to say that i was wrong earlier it is from lifetime initially and not from true tv i don't know why i said that yeah. um but after hearing you talk about this peter i feel like you might actually like a simple favor because it has oh. this the elements of this but it's a lot campier in a way well i, I want to see that movie that. yeah yeah um and i should also mention that john stamos shows up in this this series in episode seven so uh, if, if you're if a, fan, a fan of Stamos and Full House, uh, that might be enough to get you to watch the show. But I, I feel like uh, I feel like none of you guys are going to be watching this show. <laughs> but HG, are you even compelled at the least to give this a chance? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm definitely interested, actually, because a lot of my friends have talked about this and how it's like a good trashy um, like send up of Gone Girl and all those kind of things. And uh, but I am a little bit wary about how it treats its protagonist or like the male soccer per se. So we'll see. I might check it out. Yeah, it's I mean, it's the same kind of situation as like, I guess, Breaking Bad. 
Like, you know, you have a character that I think at first you kind of empathize with. And as the series goes on, you kind of realize <laughs> who you're following in the story. Um, although I feel like a lot of people are going to watch this and it's going to be like Breaking Bad, where in the final episode, they're still cheering for Walt. <laughs> I was Did so angry I, about that. Yeah. So, like, it, it, feel, it makes you feel bad a little bit in that sense. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's good trashy TV. I, I highly recommend it. And I also watched the first episode of America's Got Talent, The Champions. America's Got Talent is obviously a talent show that takes place on ABC, NBC, one of those networks. Um, one, of the, one of the networks. And um, this one, this is the first time they're doing it where they're having all the champions come back. And also some champions from overseas and some of the finalists that uh, were so close to winning. And they basically are doing like a competition show with them. It's It seems like it's going to be a lot shorter because this episode that I watched only had two people go through to the finals. So, uh, but it's, if you like America's Got Talent, you'll enjoy the show. If you have never watched America's Got Talent, I would not recommend this. Uh, I will say that because it is all the people that made it to the finals, it's generally better talent and people that actually have like you know performing careers now because of the show so it is probably more uh quality per episode uh but it's not something i could uh recommend to anybody on this podcast um chris what have you been watching aside from glass uh i finally got to watch bad times at the el royale which i didn't have a chance to see in theaters and I liked it for the most part. I think it's about a full hour too long. There's no reason this movie needed to be almost three hours long. Um, but beyond that, it has some really good uh, scenes and it has some really good performances. Um, uh, Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Erivo uh, in, in particular are both so good together that I want them to like be in more movies together because they have this really nice rapport and I, I was most interested in their stories of everyone in the film that that sort of thing the, the film tells like a bunch of different stories it, it's very much like after when after pulp fiction came out in the 90s when there was like a million pulp fiction knockoffs from hollywood this what this this is what this sort of feels like and i feel like they could have cut like one entire story and made this a much tighter much more interesting film but beyond that it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be because it it sort of came out and it felt like it just disappeared. And I actually thought it it deserves a little more attention than it got in 2018. I was going to say say on the slash Homecast, it was one of their favorite films of the year. Uh, What were you going to say, Jacob? I was going to say, I saw Fantastic Fest and I was really let down by it. But in the months since then, I've thought about it. And this may be the 2018 movie I was most wrong about. I'm looking forward to like giving it a second shot because I'm wondering if a little bit of time, a little bit of distance, maybe really kind to it with a little bit, maybe with some remodified <laughs> expectations. Because it may, it may be the film last year that I shrugged off that I will regret shrugging off when I revisit it. I'm starting to feel very strongly about that. I don't know. I feel like the the first half of this movie is amazing. If it had landed, if the second half had been the quality of that first half, I feel like this would have been my number one film of the year, you know, number one or number two, number three film of the year. But I feel like that second half goes kind of so off the wire that did you, did you guys feel that at all? Like, or is that just me that the second half is kind of uh, goes off the rails? There's this part where Chris Hemsworth's character shows up and 
when he shows up, it jumps into this very long backstory scene. And I feel like that character would have worked fine without that backstory. Cause by then it's already established that he's this dangerous cult leader. We already know that. And we don't really need a flashback showing that. And I feel like if they had just cut that entire flashback sequence and just had him show up with what we already knew about him, it would work much better. It would be like the same movie, but tighter. And that that's how I feel about it, at least. I think that there's some big swings made in that back half. Uh, I'm not, like I said, at the time I thought they were misses, but the movie's been marinating in my brain. And the more I think about what it's trying to do, as opposed to being a straightforward thriller, I think it has some something else on its mind about what it's trying to say about the American identity in the 60s. And I think that with that in mind, I want to revisit it because I I think there may be something more there. But come back to me soon because I think I may do that this week. Very cool. And Bad Times at El Royale, I think, is available on like on demand on, and stuff. Or It's on Blu-ray and it's on digital. Yeah. Um, what else have you been watching, Chris? Uh, I finally, my wife and I finally started watching Killing Eve, which is one of those shows from 2018 that everyone seemed to be talking about, and everyone said it was phenomenal, and we we had just never gotten around to watching it. And the whole first season is on Hulu now, and you know, I, I said let's let's give it a shot. And I am pleased to report all that hype is uh, very much warranted. The show is very good. Uh, Sandra O oh is fantastic in it um it, it's it's very addictive it's it's weirdly funny like i wasn't expecting it to be as funny as it is because it's a very dark and violent show but it has this really strange sense of humor i don't want to use the word quirky because that's not right it's just this very odd off-kilter sort of sense of humor that i wasn't expecting and uh, i think we're up to like episode five and uh, I'm I'm definitely hooked. So if you like me have just avoided watching this out there, I would recommend finally checking it out on Hulu because it really is as good as everyone says it is. Am, am I right that uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge was the one that wrote that show? Yeah, she wrote. She doesn't yeah. write like every episode, but she yeah. she wrote most of them. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it definitely has some of her humor. I co-sign what uh, what you have said, uh, Jacob. What have you been watching? I watched quite a bit this past week, so I'll, I'll try to barrel through as fast as I can. Well, first of all, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, and The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor all hit Netflix. So I watched them all with my wife. I watched the first Mummy pretty regularly. It's one of my wife's favorite movies. And every time I hit play on it, I always think, oh, this is going to be the time where I sour on it. And I, I still haven't. I mean, parts of it haven't aged well. And, and like some of the CGI effects are really dodgy by modern standards. But The Mummy remains just really good, a solid movie. And it's because even when the effects are dodgy, the cast is top-notch, the characters make sense, their relationships make sense. And Brendan Fraser, I know there's been a lot of talk about where he went and what happened to him. There's been articles written about it. And rewatching The Mummy, it's a shame that you know he, he got thrust out of the spotlight because what he's doing here, it's half Harrison Ford and half Cary Grant. It is you know tough, square-jawed action hero who's also a bit of a bumbling buffoon, but also, but never to the point where he's a slapstick character. It is such a tightrope and he's sexy and he's daring and he's funny. And he's just, he's everything you want of a movie star. And he has, and like he sizzles with Rachel Weisz. Whenever they're on screen, like it is, it is sexy and not in like, you know, an explicit way, but in a, you get the attraction. You understand why these two are into each other. And Mummy Returns picks up that thread 
and runs with it. I mean, the best part of Mummy Returns is that, you know, 10 years later, but Rick O'Connell, you know, dashing adventurer, he's so happy to be married. He's still in love with this woman. He's happy to have a kid. He's happy to have a domestic life. So even though the mummy comes back, he's like, the movie like finds drama and comedy in him actually being pretty happy to be settled down as opposed to, you know, him being anxious about it. And Mummy Returns is about half as good as the first one. And that's because it starts strong, but it ends really badly. Even in 2001, in the theater in 2001, I remember the audience is being lost by the time that last 40 minutes rolls around. The, the effects look bad in 2001. They look even worse today. And the, the Scorpion King, the Rock's a CGI character who shows up at the end is a nightmare. I mean, it was, it was bad then. It's And like now it's just like a PlayStation graphic. It is really bad. And then you have Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which is about half as good as Returns. And it loses Rachel Vice, which is a huge shame because Maria Bella does what she can, but Brendan Fraser doesn't have the same chemistry with her. And it loses Stephen Summers, who has made bad movies since Mummy, but he's also had brought a certain distinct balance to those first two that Rob Cohen just can't find. It just is this lost, bland thing, and it's lacking the character dynamics that make the first two sing. Even Mummy Returns, when it's when it's bad, still has character banter and dialogue that sings and elevates it. But I think the first two are definitely worth revisiting. You can skip Tomb of the Dragon Emperor for sure. But I know, uh, HD, you revisited the Mummy as well, right? Yeah, I was inspired by your tweets um, that you were posting as you were watching your little marathon. Because uh, it's been a while since I've seen The Mummy, and I've always remembered it very fondly because I, I kind of grew up watching the, these movies. Uh, I didn't watch Tomb of the Dragon Emperor ever because I had heard many that bad things and so just went and avoided that. But I rewatched just The Mummy. And you are everything you said is right. It's such a great swashbuckling adventure movie. And yes, Brendan Fraser is just a star in this. I think he's got this great, like twinkling, almost boy next door quality to him that makes him a little bit non-threatening, but in a way that is still like very masculine. And um, I like. I'm very sad that he kind of dropped off the earth um, after his um, big like early 2000s streak with this. George of the Jungle, other films. I think I remember like Encino Man, but um, he he's great and uh, this film is great. And Rachel Weisz in one of her early roles is so fun to watch uh, after seeing her being so acidic in The Favorite. And everybody's dressed so well. Like I feel like nobody's dressed for function. Everybody's dressed looks as cool <laughs> as possible in 1920s fashions. <laughs> uh, but also, I, I'm going to say I watched for the first time uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, I know I got chided on this podcast a little while back for saying i never seen it. So I've seen it, and it's very good. But it's interesting uh, because I didn't really laugh at it. I don't think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is very funny. Uh, but I thought, I thought it was charming. I thought I, I smiled a lot, and I enjoyed watching it. But I didn't laugh out loud ever. I, I, am I crazy? Who, who thinks I'm wrong here? I don't, I don't think it's uh, aged as well in the comedy department. I, um, it's, it's not nearly as funny as it is when you're younger, uh, especially when it comes to like that kind of, you know, culture with the whoa, dude, bro, kind of thing. Um, but it's, I, I think it's as, as entertaining as any, you know, other kind of nostalgic movie that you grew up with from, you know, the 80s or 90s that has dated comedy in it. Yeah, I would watch it in high school. Um, actually, my orchestra teacher was obsessed with this movie, so sometimes he would just forego practice and put Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure on. And that's, I have really fond memories of this movie, and I think laughing a lot with it, but I do think that it might have to do with the nostalgic sheen and just like the chance to not have class. 
Yeah, and, and it's such a uh, warm, nice movie that when that they're, they're the, the point where it's Bill and Ted embrace each other, then yell "fag," is such a jarring. Oh my god, this movie was made thirty years ago. Moment. Yeah, it's really, really like like I'm not the kind of person who um writes off a movie because they're from a different time and place. I was like, whoa, this movie was this movie is so good natured and kind and in love with characters in the world and something that has a homophobic slur as a major like laugh moment it was odd incredibly odd to witness uh but i, I still enjoyed it it's streaming now on amazon uh speaking of uh streaming things i watched 1998 godzilla because i hate myself and because it's a really it's, it's also streaming on netflix so i popped it on and it's, it's unbearable yeah i mean i'm somebody who loves independence day and i know the studios gave roland emmerich and dean devlin carte blanche to make godzilla after the success of that and this thing just doesn't understand the appeal of godzilla it is a miscalculation on all fronts Matthew Broderick is boring. The female lead is boring. The best part is the best part of the movie is Hank Azaria being a goofball. I mean, if the movie had been Hank Azaria driving around New York looking for Godzilla to get photographs of him, I would have probably enjoyed this a lot more. But man, it does not hold up. And it did, I mean, it was a bad movie in the '90s, and it's even worse now. And speaking of bad movies, uh, I watched Navy Seals. I don't know why oh, I watched the, the, Navy the Seals. movie that they make fun of in Clerks. They do, yeah. The movie they make fun of in Clerks. Uh, I've never seen this film. Punchline. It's streaming on Amazon and. It is Charlie Sheen and, and Michael Bean uh, play uh, members of an elite uh, Navy SEALs unit. And it's very, he's released in 1990, but it's very much a movie from the Reagan era. You can tell it was you know made uh, in the same macho uh, America's right at all times mindset. To give you an idea of the plot of this movie. A um, Islamic terrorist has stolen a bunch of missiles and is threatening to you know use them against Americans. And so Michael Bean's character, the leader of the squad, tracks down a half um, uh, a half uh, Arabic journalist to uh, who knows where the terrorists are hiding, and she's all like, "Middle East is complicated," and um, and tr- trying to barge in there without understanding that is actually a really bad decision, and we we should actually rethink how we approach the Middle East and our policies there. And the entire plot of the movie is Michael Bean convincing her she's wrong, and about how they should go in there and blow everything up. And it is, it is ridiculous. I mean, as, as a time capsule, it is fascinating. I mean, but as someone who like we live in such a, a gray, a morally gray area, I feel like we all become more aware of that all the political situations and unrest, especially in the Middle East, are are never as simple as the '80s taught us they were. And this movie just like literally makes it a plot point that thinking about this is wrong, over or you're overthinking the politics of the region. Just blow things up and be done with it. <laughs> And if and if you're not easily offended and you want to see a movie that is very much a product of its time, you want to see a very young Dennis Haysbert, very young Titus Welliver, and very young um, uh, Bill Paxton in supporting roles. You know, it, it's it's very strange. Uh, not worth watching if you want a good movie, but worth watching if you're interested in little, you know, how backwards things were, you know, in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. Uh, also, I caught up on some recent TV. Uh, New episode, the Good Place is back, and the Brooklyn Nine Nine is back now on its new network, NBC. And quite frankly, I think they're back without missing a beat. Good Place's most recent episode is as good as the show has ever been. Brooklyn Nine Nine, despite the uh, new network, feels like it hasn't missed a beat. The new episode is just as good as it was before it was uh, temporarily canceled. Uh, HD, do you agree? I know you watched both these as well. Oh yeah, this is a great premiere for season premiere for both these shows, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. I felt so much joy having it back, and it felt like the transition from uh, Fox NBC was very seamless. Though they did throw in a um, a little joke that they can only do on NBC, which is they can 
uh, bleep out words on NBC, whereas they couldn't in Fox. So they had they had a fun little um, in joke in there. And um, the good place is is great. Um, I was it's funny to me that this show kind of started off as this uh, jovial, warm-hearted series about like maybe we'll learn a little philosophy, and now it's become like this indictment on capitalism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I um, I'm really enjoying both of them. I can't wait for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, A Good Place is still a warm, nice show about nice things happening to good people. But I love how this episode in particular took aim at the idea that um, sometimes the good guys, so to speak, are so good that they refuse to um, even remotely bend the rules to save the world. And it was um, it was a really, really damning knives out kind of moment that like gave me some chills in between the laughs. And finally, real quick, uh, Top Chef's back. Top Chef is still good. My favorite reality TV show that's about it's not about people lifting heavy things. Um yeah, Top Chef. Watch it if you like food. That's it. I'm done. Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been watching a pretty good amount, actually. Uh, first of all, I went to the theaters um, last week to catch Escape Room. Uh, I'm somebody who likes doing Escape Rooms, and some of my friends who I've done Escape Rooms with wanted to uh, go check it out. So we did that together, and it's surprisingly fun. I actually really enjoyed it. It's a completely unbelievable premise and it's you know kind of diet saw with a little bit more i guess clever um puzzles even though there are some parts of the puzzles that are where you're in your seat and you know the answer and you're like what are you guys doing like this is ridiculous but the the more intense parts of the escape rooms and like the things they have to do in order to survive uh, are pretty cool there's a lot of suspense and everything um I, I know that Chris wrote in his review that it kind of all falls apart in the end, but I actually, without spoiling anything, I kind of liked how crazy it got in the end, especially when it comes to what is a very obvious setup for the sequel. I was I, At that point, I was all in. I was like, fuck yes, go balls to the wall. I want to see how nuts this shit can get. <laughs> um, because, because it does set up, it, it, it expands the idea of like what the people who put these select people in this escape room situation are doing and it takes it to this huge grand scope and i'm just like fuck yeah i want to see more of this um so it's pretty fun it's not you know gonna blow your mind it's not gonna be one of the best movies of the year or anything like that but for a movie in january um and as somebody who likes escape rooms i I had a lot of fun watching it you know i always like the escape room aspect of the saw movies and i know a lot of people like to write write off those films as kind of like I guess, torture porn or whatever. But I feel like those films don't get the credit they deserve. Uh, Chris, is is this a film that you would recommend to people? You know, uh, I liked it a lot more than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I thought I, I was going to. And the first like hour and you know 10 minutes or so are actually, I wouldn't even go as far as say is uh, like good or at least bordering on good. And then without giving away spoilers, um it, it hits this point where it stops being clever and it seems like the writers just couldn't figure out how to end the movie. So they throw in all this insane shit, which doesn't really gel with the first half of the movie. So at that point I, I gave up, but there's enough good stuff in this to recommend. Like for one thing, they actually take time to uh, develop the characters, which is something I feel like a lot of the Saw sequels never did. Like they just introduced people and killed them. And in this film, you actually get to know everyone who's in, you know, the scenarios and you sort of, you know, grow to care about a few of them. So that I really appreciated. So I would say if, if you're, you have very low expectations, you will enjoy escape room. Very cool. Uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? 
Uh, I also been doing some, I guess, kind of like end of the year catch up um, I, and uh, award season style catch up, if you, if you would say. I got around to watching Minding the Gap, uh, which is a documentary on Hulu that focuses on some some teens and twenty somethings living in Rockford, Illinois, who are um, like to go around town skateboarding, just having a good time. Uh, you know, they're just hanging out, drinking beers, just like any friends would. But then you kind of get a peek into their lives and see that they're a lot of them are kind of living these directionless lives where they're kind of just living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. And then when it really digs in, you, the movie you discover is more so about the idea of, you know, how um, fathers treat their their kids, specifically their sons, and how sometimes you know fathers who have abusive and uh, violent tendencies, alcoholic tendencies, um, sort of create this path for their kids to follow and make the same mistakes and create this rut for them that they find it really difficult to break themselves because it's, it's all they've known. It's how they've grown up. Um, and so they keep, you know, making these kinds of mistakes and following in their father's footsteps. And so it's, uh, it's really sad. It's really heartbreaking, but there, there is some glimmer of hope there, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, one of, one of the characters that the documentary follows because he's, he's so young and he seems so, uh, you know, just bright eyed and intent on not being stuck you know, in, in this town that he's lived in for his entire life. Um, as somebody who lives, you know, in a smaller town in uh, the Midwest, um, not super far from Rockford, Illinois, it's, it's only a few hours away. Um, I know plenty of people like this in this documentary. Um, and there are plenty of people in this town who uh, live the same kind of life and have the same kind of problems. And so it's, uh, it was an interesting reflection of things that I see a lot. And, um, but it's, yeah, a very, a very good documentary for sure. It, I have to ask you, Brad, because you published your, you know, your top 15 last week. Is this a film that would have made your top 15 if you had seen it before then? Probably not. It, it probably would have been somewhere in my top 25 um, because th- I didn't like this necessarily as much as Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is probably my favorite documentary of 2018, uh, which also probably would have been in my top 25 as well. Um, but this was it, it definitely uh, was one of my, the more uh, impactful movies that I saw in 2018 for sure. It really, really left its mark. Very cool. What else have you been seeing? I finally got around to seeing Mandy. Um, a, a big part of my inspiration for this catch up was there were a few movies that were on our list for the, uh, 50 greatest uh, movie or the best movie moments from 2018 that I hadn't seen yet. And I kind of wanted to go out of my way to see some of them that were easily available before I turned in the, the ranking for those, which, which is coming, uh, in the next day, I believe. Uh, so I watched Mandy and man, this movie like, uh, fucked with my head in so many ways. It is, I told my friend, it's basically like all of a sudden you have a fever and you're stuck in the album artwork for a heavy metal album. Um, and Nicholas Cage is there. Uh, it is just so twisted and, uh, strange, but so, so compelling and has incredible visuals. Uh, and Nicholas Cage really is great in this movie. His sort of surreal presence on this earth is channeled through this character. And like his acting style really lends itself uh, to this kind of movie. I wish he would just keep making movies like this all the time. Because he's kind. Of, it's kind of perfect uh, for this exact character. Um, and then like it, there's gruesome and bloody uh, fight scenes. There's, there's craziness here. And then there's visuals that totally mess with your mind. There's one shot in this movie where... The cult leader 
uh, in this movie is talking to Andrew Riseborough's character. And the shots that they use is this, this close-up symmetrical shot of each of their faces. And it keeps fading and melding back and forth between their faces to the point where, like, it's half of one's face and mixed with the half of the other or, like, a quarter of it. And, like, their eyes keep changing and fading back into each other. And it's really trippy. It makes you feel like you're on as many drugs as some of the characters in this movie. Um, it, it's not one of my favorites or any means, but I, I definitely don't regret watching it. I can see why people love it. Um, cause it, yeah, it's just, uh, it's one of the mo the more unique movies of, of 2018 for sure. This was Jacob's number one movie of 2018. It w- doesn't sound like it would make your list though, right? Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't make my list, but it's, it's absolutely a, a Jacob Hall movie for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, and lastly, and the last thing I watched, yeah, last thing I, I watched, I got around to watching the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, the Coen Brothers uh, Western short story collection that is available on Netflix, and uh, it's it's really good. I uh, I didn't find myself attached to two of the six shorts. Um, two of them I was just I could have taken or leave uh, taken or leave um, leaving Levin? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, left. <laughs> I don't know why I blanked on that word. <laughs> I'm glad you're an editor on SlashFilm.com. <laughs> so stupid <laughs> um but uh i by it's it's really good um i i was wondering if they were actually all going to connect and i'm really glad that they didn't because it made the stories stand on their own really well um i they each has their own a, a different kind of story to tell uh everyone everyone is great in this movie too i um i love liam neeson uh in in his short uh tom waits is fantastic in this movie um Easily, my, one of my favorite parts is uh, a, a, a moment that is coming on our, our list that we talked about, and I, I'm i glad I kind of blanked or just forgot that we even talked about this moment, because I was equally as shocked by it. Uh, it it's when uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character, Buster Scruggs, has this incredible uh, kill that he pulls off, and it's all the more shocking because his character is such a nice, like, breaking the fourth wall, charming, like, like man, I'm, I'm just a nice, nice little clean-cut cowboy. And then out of nowhere, he just <laughs> gives this brutal death to Surly Joe in a bar and then busts into a musical sequence. Such a great scene. Um, and it just, yeah, pure Coen Brothers uh, th- throughout. It's, uh, it's a great, great collection of short stories. So you should definitely check it out on Netflix. Very cool. And uh, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I caught up, like I said, with Unbreakable. Uh, I rewatched that right before I saw Glass. And, I mean, it's just sort of astounding to me that this movie came out in the year 2000 because this was released only a few months after the first X-Men movie came out. And it's kind of nuts just thinking about, you know, this movie's place in the superhero movie pantheon and sort of how it was like a postmodern superhero movie before superhero films were like the... Uh, you know, like as dominant a force as they are now, um, you know, watching it now, it it, it just feels like such a, a weird, um, I don't know, like a weird relic of a, of a totally different era. But it also feels way ahead of its time. It's it's a but, strange thing. But it also thing. wasn't marketed as a superhero film. Yeah. And like especially I, I'm glad you brought that up because especially being so far separated from the marketing and all of the hype and expectations and stuff coming off of the sixth sense and having all of that be, you know, just white noise in the distant background and just watching the movie for what it is. Um, I'm glad I had that experience because I, I wasn't even really as tapped into what M. Night Shyamalan was doing at, at that time back then. So I don't I think I largely missed a lot of that 
you know, the hype and maybe the disappointment that some people had when this turned out to be a superhero movie. Because I think, like you're saying, it, most people didn't even know that that's what it was because of the trailers and all that. They tried to capitalize on the success of Sixth Sense and make it seem like just another thriller. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to them. Well, I, 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 I don't even think it was that they were trying to capitalize on the success. I think, like, that was a twist. Like, that was a planned twist by M. Night that, like, you don't – like, that it, it, it was kind of, pr- like – positioned as a mystery of like why is this guy the only survivor of this thing and that you know that wasn't just like you know deceptive marketing that was like that was the hook i guess yeah (laughs) yeah i don't know it's it's very good i i um don't think it's his best movie but i think it's uh it's certainly an interesting time capsule um if if nothing else so go check that movie out instead of (laughs) watching glass i would think i would say uh i also watched a movie from 1973 called the train robbers which i'd never seen before it stars john wayne and rod taylor and ann margaret um it's sort of like a, a a traditional western in that john wayne plays like the moral arbiter of between good and evil like he's like the standard hero kind of guy um but it's a really cool like treasure hunt story about this woman who after her husband dies she wants to uh, reclaim the gold that her husband stole and uh, try to you know return it to the the railroad to clear the family name so her son grows up um you know without this this looming thing of his father having been a criminal over him his whole life but instead she ends up teaming up with the guys that she hires to find this gold and they actually just go out and try to get it for themselves um and she's in on it with them and it's this really i mean it's got great cinematography and a really really good score with like magnificent seven style themes throughout there's like some big explosions and a a really fun twist ending so um it's called the train robbers i would definitely recommend checking that out if you guys haven't seen that one if you're looking for a a classic old or a, a, a western that feels like an old classic i'm not sure how it's um how it's really you know what its standing is in the western community right now but uh and then i also watched memories of murder which is one of bong joon ho's early movies i'd never seen this one before um it is based on the true story of korea's first serial murders in the 1980s and there is some really really disturbing stuff that happens to several women in this movie so it's probably not for squeamish audience members out there but it's like about this uh like buffoonish cop who constantly thinks that he's found the serial killer because he like coerces confessions out of everyone that he comes in contact with basically and then there's this big city detective who sort of rolls in and realizes that like standard operating procedures don't apply to catch a criminal who is so um you know, so notorious and and is going further than anybody's gone in, in the country's history. But Bong Joon-ho, I mean, man, that guy, he always knows where to put the camera. And really, like, amid all of these uh, super disturbing moments, his bizarre sense of humor uh, really struck me as, like, always being on display. Like, there's this one edit that cuts from a body on a slab in a morgue to a hunk of meat being cooked for a meal. And it's just like, it's so gross and so Bong Joon-ho to me. Um, but yeah, the, it, the craft of this one is what is what stood out to me the most, more than the story, which, you know, it's about a serial killer. It, it sort of feels maybe old hat now because we've seen so many of those types of stories before. So plot-wise, it's probably not anything you've you've never seen, but um, I would I would recommend it. And then... Uh, oh, but real quick, Ben, is it, is it streaming somewhere? Because I've, I haven't seen this movie in years. I've been wanting to revisit it. 
where did I watch this? It's on Amazon I... Prime. Yes. Okay. I watched it recently, yes. too. It's so good. Yeah, it, it, I remember being really good, but it's been a while, so thanks a lot. I'm, I'm going to put that on my list for this week. Yeah, yeah. And then another one that I would recommend that all of you see, if you have not yet, is a movie called Gaslight from 1944. And this is based on a play, and that's where the term gaslighting comes from, which is the the movie, like I said, it's, a, it's an adaptation of this play, and it's about this woman whose husband... Try spends the entire movie trying to convince her that she is going insane. So you've probably heard the term gaslighting before, and that's where this comes from. And it it was nominated for seven Oscars, and I mean it's totally deserving because this movie rules. It came out in the mid '40s, and uh, who directed it? George Cukor directed this. He directed like the 1950s version of A Star Is Born, The Philadelphia Story, um, Born Yesterday, My Fair Lady. I mean, he was like a, a, a big name in that era of Hollywood filmmaking. And um, man, this movie is so good. Uh, Ingrid Bergman plays the woman who is being <laughs> gaslit. Uh, Charles Boyer plays her husband, who is like this, dis- you know, uh, deceiving guy who has all sorts of ulterior ulterior motives and joseph cotton from who i know from best from uh, the third man is uh, a detective who's trying to figure out what the hell is going on in this thing and um angela lansbury is in this and she was 17 at the time and it's her first movie ever and it blew me away just to see a young angela lansbury because i'd never seen her in anything you know, <laughs> I guess probably earlier than like bed knobs and broomsticks or something. Um, but man, she is so good in this. And Ingrid Bergman really is like the the key in this whole thing. She is uh, tremendous in this film and the script is great. The direction is so tight. Um, man, I, I, it's like one of my favorite old movies that I that I've seen in a long, long time. So it's called Gaslight. Uh, and I I caught up with it on TCM. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere. I haven't I haven't checked on that. But um, add this one to your watch lists, people, because it's it's really, really good. And then lastly, I this morning, actually, I watched Police Story, which is getting a 4K re-release um, pretty soon. Uh, I think I got a press release about that. I'll have to check the date. But um, this is the Jackie Chan action movie from 1985. He co-wrote the screenplay and stars in it and directed this movie. It's the first of the police sort uh, police story franchise, which I think has like six films in it at this point or something. But, um, I mean, I, I don't, don't know how I missed this one. I have seen a lot of Jackie Chan's older stuff, but this one slipped through the cracks and I am so glad that I caught up with this because it's just insane watching what he does and what his his you know stunt team and and fight choreographers and all those guys are capable of pulling off. I was struck particularly this time just by the incredible speed of the fight scenes. Like Jackie Chan is just unreal. If you guys have not, you know, if you know him, if listeners out there know him primarily from like the Rush Hour movies, um you know, those movies, he was in his whatever, 40s or 50s or something, and the, he's really good in those films, but he was uh, slower. And watching him in something like Police Story, just the speed on display is like jaw-dropping, how quick and fluid he is um, at all the martial arts scenes. And uh, I also had no idea that Michael Bay straight up stole the action scene from Bad Boys 2 where a car destroys a shantytown by driving through it in a downhill rampage straight from this movie. So uh, that was pretty amazing to see, too. And there's just like this tactile nature to a lot of, I mean, all of Jackie Chan's early films where it's like, you know, for a fact that these guys are 
near death at every moment. And there are, there are you know, glass panes everywhere being shattered and people just f- hurling their bodies in the most dangerous way possible. Um, if you have not done a deep dive on the early works of Jackie Chan, start with Police Story and uh, <laughs> and just go from there because there's there's so much fun to be had in watching him go nuts in these movies. Very cool. Uh, Ichi, you've already talked about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and The Mummy, but you have watched some other stuff this week as well, right? Yeah. So I watched A Dog's Way Home to review for SlashFilm.com. And uh, this sorry. is a film. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yes, it's... It's all right. <laughs> well, the thing is, I was prepared to ha- to watch a feel-good family film that maybe is a little cheesy, a little bit, little bit melancholy, and ultimately very heartwarming. Instead, this was a bafflingly dark film. Um, I, uh, you retweeted this tweet that I made about how at one point in the film, it becomes a grim survival story in which Bella, the dog, that's played by Bryce Dallas, Dallas Howard, um, is chained like become stuck and chained to this homeless man who dies and she is stuck within like a foot of water and unable to get that water so she's like dying of dehydration and I was watching this and I was like what who is this movie for I still have no idea and it's so it's so odd to me too because this film just like um whips between the cheery tone of the first half to this grim almost nihilistic version and then back to the family friendly cheery tone and so it's it's well, very well, it is based on a book right yes it is it is based on a book um just the but the way that it's paced and the way that um the um it kind of just doesn't really let you linger on some of the more <laughs> existential dread parts of this movie is a little just um tonal whiplash uh, gives you a little tonal, tonal whiplash. So, um, I yeah, I don't know if I would recommend get taking your kids to this. Uh, they might, they may not like register it because the kid next to me was just like very impatient during the whole dying of dehydration part. So I was just like, okay, maybe, maybe they don't care. So <laughs> that's the movie I saw. Um, and then I also watched uh, a Twelve Year Night on Netflix. This is an Uruguayan drama that was actually up for, um, well, the country's, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, their uh, contender for the Oscar, for, for the foreign language Oscar. Uh, it did not make the shortlist, but uh, it's a, it's kind of unfortunate that it didn't because it's a very powerful film that uh, tells the true story of the 12 year incarceration of um, the former president of Uruguay. Jose Mujica and um, his fellow sort of left-wing guerrilla group uh, members uh, in the 1970s. And while I kind of expected this to be a grim crime prison drama that would be kind of a, a chore to watch, it ended up being quite surreal and compelling in many ways. Like at, at some points, this film would launch into several dreamlike visions that almost become a little Malikian. And I really enjoyed watching this, uh, despite it having a very, um, some very harrowing and visceral scenes. So uh, I recommend um, checking it out on Netflix. It's called 12 Year Night. Um, and uh, those are the ones I mentioned before. Those are all I watched this week. Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I've been continuing my diet, uh, the keto diet, which apparently is like 
becoming pretty big uh, as late uh, local Los Angeles Mexican chain that like they, they do like healthy Mexican food. Uh, Tok- Tokia Organica, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, they launched a keto bowl and actually Chipotle launched a keto bowl as well. Uh, so making things easier for me, I, I, I rushed over to Organica to try that out and I loved it. It has like a Spanish cauliflower rice in it and it's, it's very, uh, very good. The only thing that's annoying is that, uh, when you're a local chain and you don't have, you know, I think it's probably like 20 stores or something like that. Like they don't have to publish the, the nutritional information. So I don't know exactly how many calories or how many carbs are in this bowl. Um, although like, you know, a place like Chipotle does publish that information. So it's, it, it's tough when you're on a diet and, and a place says it's keto, but doesn't quite tell you, you know, how many calories you're eating. Uh, but I did enjoy it. And anybody in Los Angeles area, I would say, check it out. It is a, a good keto option. I know, um, I was very hesitant about talking about, uh, my diet and recommending these things to people out there, but I've gotten a, a bunch of tweets from, and in emails from listeners of the podcast that have thanked me for finding things, even when they're not on the diet, finding stuff that's like low sugar and stuff like that. So, uh, I'll continue to do that in the segment. Um, also I have noticed some huge gains. Uh, I, my, my suit, like, like it's almost like clown pants it's uh like there's a good like 10 inches that are missing uh in my body for the suit and luckily i have suspenders that keep my suit up so you don't have to buy a new suit uh and i uh just last night i went to that uh that play wicked and i put on a suit jacket and for the first time in probably since I bought it over a year ago, I could button up both of the buttons on the suit jacket. Not that I wear them buttoned, but uh, without it like being stressed in any way. So uh, I am I am celebrating uh, some good success here. I know Jacob, you just started your journey. You talked about that last week. How has it been going? I'm on day eight right now, and the good thing about the good thing about keto, which which is what I'm also doing, I'm not being as public about it as you are, because whenever I mention keto, I get people saying, "Well, a better diet is this," and I just don't want to deal with that bullshit. Yeah. Um, but the good thing about keto is that it's very flexible. Uh, it's not like you can't have doesn't restrict you as much as other diets does. It's more about you know the keeping carbs low, but increasing the fat intake, and it's not about you know guzzling down 20 protein shakes a day. And because of this, there's so, so much flexibility in it and so many recipes out there if you know where to look. Uh, my wife and I have been doing a lot of research about, you know, finding good things to eat and good things to make. And, like, for example, she made a chocolate cupcake that only has three carbs in it, and it tastes perfectly fine. Like, I wouldn't put it up against, you know, a sugar-filled cupcake, you know, but when you're, you know, in a desert, you take what you can get, and this actually <laughs> tastes very good for what it is and, like, a good, you know, snack. We're also finding things like Lily's makes a low-carb chocolate, like a Hershey's chocolate bar that tastes very, very close to um, regular chocolate. And uh, SlimFast makes a uh, keto peanut butter cup. Uh, once again, like you wouldn't put it up against a Reese's cup, but when you're on a diet and eat a snack, it tastes it tastes perfectly fine. And you know, like little things like finding out, like going to Chipotle and getting a double meat bowl without the rice and beans. You know, it's you know, sometimes you miss those rice and beans, but you know. We power through and enjoy the flavors anyway. Or you go to my favorite ramen place and get double meat and no noodles. And you're just enjoying broth and meat. And you get all those ramen flavors without all you know without the overload of the carbs. Oh, it, it never so occurred to me that ramen could be uh, keto. Yeah, I, I did a lot I did a lot of research and apparently it's it's very common just to um 
I guess I, I wouldn't, you know, grab a ramen pack off the shelf at your store, uh, but going to an actual ramen restaurant and, you know, ordering without noodles is apparently something that, that's pretty common, especially if you can order extra bean sprouts. Since bean sprouts have very low carb and they're a vegetable anyway. And you just order, like, I order a spicy chicken ramen without the noodles with uh, extra chicken, and it's very, very good. And, you know, it's only day eight. You know, I'm tracking all this on my Instagram if you, if you want to pop over there and take a look. And it's, you know, so often I associate dieting with misery, and this is the first time in a while where I'm not feeling miserable on a diet. So even though my I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even weighing myself, I'm, I'm going by shirt sizes. I'm not going to let the numbers discourage me. So I'm actually taking photographs of myself once a week in a gold shirt. Right now, it's way too tight. It looks really, really bad on me. <laughs> you, can see, you can see every part of my body that you don't want to see, probably. But you know, every week, every you know Sunday or Monday, I'm going to photograph myself in this shirt until it fits. And then I will photograph myself when the new shirt doesn't fit me. And we'll, that's, my, that's going to how I'm going to track this going forward. So that's, that's going to be Instagram. So that's Jacob Samuel Hall on Instagram if you're interested in that whatsoever. It's mostly you know, weight loss stuff and dog pictures. And But you know, if, if you want that at all, it's, it's all there. And some painting miniatures, which we'll talk about later. Yes. <laughs> I'll have to send you over some recipes. I found some really good keto recipes. Now that I know you're actually on keto, you might uh, enjoy. Um, yes, please. Brad, on the other side of the coin, you love uh, bad food, and you've been eating some of it. Uh, what What have you been eating this week in Brad's yeah, food corner? You guys, make, you guys are making me feel bad about all this this weird, fun, unhealthy stuff that I'm trying. <laughs> Um, but I'm, I like new cereals. What can I, what can I say? Um, yeah, I, I found some new, uh, cereals that are out on shelves. Um, Hostess has made two new cereals with post that are modeled after the, some of the things that they have on shelves. They have a, a powdered donuts cereal and also a honey bun cereal, uh, that you can find on, on shelves that, uh, I, I found mine at Walmart. I'm sure you can find them at other grocery sections and whatnot. Um, and both are, are really good, actually. Uh, the powdered donuts um, has a the the powdered coating on it. Really does taste like the powdered sugar that they put on the actual uh, cereal. And the cereal itself is it's like it's basically like a, a sweeter Cheerio, I guess you could say, uh, or a sweeter, thicker Cheerio. Um, it tastes kind of like frosted uh, Cheerios, but the whatever coating they use to recreate the the powdered sugar taste of the donuts. Um, is is different and it just it, it tastes better um, and it's I, I was surprised that it was actually good it's they're, they're good both dry and in milk and then the the honey bun cereal which is also another uh, pretty sweet cereal uh, does a really good job of recreating like the the taste and and smell of a a honey bun um, I prefer my actual honey buns with the frosting on them and the, um, so but so this is just more of the the honey bun flavor without the frosting and it, it actually has the taste of that waffle crisp used to have, albeit a little less uh, mapley and a little bit more cinnamon. Um, it's it's very sweet, uh, very crunchy, and it's uh, it kind of has a, a little bit of a honeycomb flair to it. I guess you'd say like honeycomb meets waffle crisp, but without the the maple flavor. Uh, and yeah, both both are good dry or or with milk. So if you see them out on a shelf, they're definitely worth trying. And then uh, on the snack side of things, I also was able to find a package of carrot cake oreos which are out um along with the rest of the really early easter-esque stuff uh carrot cake isn't any one of my favorite desserts or anything like that but i do enjoy it mostly because of the the cream cheese frosting and these oreos are pretty good the the cookie itself um is a it's not the chocolate cookie it's like a kind of like the graham cookie but there's definitely more of a flavor of nutmeg um that you get from actual carrot cake 
And the frosting itself is fantastic. It's really close to actually being and tasting like cream cheese frosting. Uh, so having yeah, having a cookie that uh, replicates the carrot cake uh, flavor, it does a pretty good job of it. Um, so if, if you like carrot cake, you'll probably like these Oreos. If you're not a carrot cake fan, then why would you bother? Oh, before we move on to HG, I just want to point out, I said a rice noodle earlier. I meant bean sprout. Bean sprouts are really good for keto. Rice noodles are not. So when you make your uh, keto-friendly ramen, uh, bean sprout is the key, not rice noodle. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want rice noodle. Um, HG, you've been uh, playing around with your Instant Pot. This is something I've seen uh, David Chen uh t- tweeting and instagramming a lot about and i've been tempted to buy one because there's even uh keto instapot uh recipes out there uh what how are you liking it yeah speaking of in, of rice noodles i made pho for the first time in my instant pot so um this is actually something i was a little anxious to make because pho is always kind of a big production um and um i use i'm used to my mom and my grandma making pho and it taking them like four hours to do because you have to like put a whole like this is chicken pho by the way so you have to put like a whole you know chicken and let it like simmer and stew for like four hours and it just like the smell wafts throughout the house and it's delicious but with instant pot that gets like halved um so i did it for the first time by myself after like uh once doing it with my mom and um it turned out really well so it was um chicken pho again and um we're, i was able to you know maneuver an entire chicken and not kill anyone and uh it was uh, great and i'm i'm happy that i'm living i'm achieving my new year's resolutions of cooking more vietnamese food so um yeah and i'm i'm liking the instant pot it is a little bit intimidating at points because um when you depressurize you can do it like instantly by opening the valve and then like all the steam shoots up and if you have your hand over it you could burn your hand so that's something you have to be wary of but i think it's a uh, really good especially if you want to just um uh put something throw something in for like a half an hour or something and have your dinner ready, essentially. So um, it's only the prep that really takes quite a while, but that's the same for pho and a lot of Vietnamese dishes in general. So um, I'm excited to try more Vietnamese dishes. My mom, this is my mom's recipe, so I can't share it with the world, I'm sorry. But um, my, she has turned the rest of my family, a lot of my cousins onto the Instant Pot as well. So we've actually started a, um, a Google Doc with um where we share random instant pot recipes uh i'm i'm i want to try next the baja or um my cousin also has a beef bourguignon instant pot recipe so i'm excited to try some more very cool Uh, let's move on to what we've been playing i'll start things out uh i went over a friend's house the other night and we uh bought uh the wizard of oz edition of unlocked unlocked is like an escape room in a small card box so basically it's a it's a deck of cards that you bring out and you 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 start a timer on your phone that also there's this app that has like you can ask for hints and almost like a real escape room and you like basically open the first card and it tells you you know you're in a room and what you have to do and stuff like this This one was wizard of oz themed which is kind of weird because this is uh i think they've come out with like nine or 12 like a dozen of these and the wizard of oz one is apparently the hardest uh skill level of all of them um and uh we successfully did it with one minute to spare so so i am smart is what i'm saying or we are smart my group is smart 
Maybe I'm not smart. Um, and uh, we also got to play a little bit more of Keyforge. We went to the local uh, board game store and bought a couple packs of Keyforge uh, because we didn't have any at his house. And uh, I'm really loving this game, Jacob. I know that you don't want to invest yourself, but I really love the idea of, of buying a pack of this game. I talked about this last week. It's basically a a, uh, a card game that uh, each pack is 100% unique. No one on in the world has that exact deck of cards, and there's no way to build your deck or change your deck. That is the deck. So I, I just love the idea of going to the board game store or Barnes & Nobles or whatever and spending 9 bucks, getting a pack, and then discovering it as you're playing against uh, a friend. Uh, my friend barely beat me. I'm not seeing a lot of... Um, I know some people have been complaining about uh, balance issues and stuff, but so far, I've really not seen balance issues, and there's some really cool combos and fun to be had with Keyforge. So I highly recommend Keyforge. Unlocked is I would recommend. I wouldn't recommend starting with Wizard of Oz because this that game is kind of... It's half... Um, I would say half of you trying to figure out the puzzles and half of you figuring out what you're supposed to actually be doing, which is kind of frustrating, which I guess emulates an escape room in some ways as well. Uh, Jacob, I know I, I mentioned before that you were get you were getting into the painting hobby, the the miniature painting hobby, and you have uh, begun that. Uh, yes, I had already assembled some Warhammer 40k miniatures, uh, and I had my first painting session. I went over to my brother's house in San Antonio. Uh, he's been on, in the hobby for a few months now. Gave me some pointers and I started painting. And I was, it's initially really intimidating. We actually went to a Games Workshop store. Games Workshop is a company that makes Warhammer. And this store is literally only their products. And the guy there was very helpful. And by the uh, way, but, you, you should paint the picture here. This is probably a, a, a big store in one whole wall. It's just like filled with small bottles of paint. Like every single possible, like they're like, <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to make up like a name of a paint, but they'll have like ten different b- colors of blood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, um, there's, there's actually a reasonably small store. Um, you know, not not huge, not tiny, but you know, maybe the size of a of a movie pawn shop. And you know, it's all Warhammer, which is all fantasy, Warhammer 40k, which is science fiction. And you know, first you got to buy a spray for your base. Um, sorry, for, for your primer, and then you got to um, you can't buy like industrial primer because it will ruin the Figure you gotta go buy their primer, then you gotta buy you know base paints. Then if you want to keep going, you can go on the shade paints and other layered paints. And there's all different layers you can, you can go into. Right now I'm just and, working and then on like, base paint. Like thirty different kinds of brushes you can get. Yes, yeah. It's, it's I'm a keeping hole. It, it's a yeah, hole. I'm keeping I'm keeping it simple right now. I'm just working with the base paints. I'm just working with a brush kit I bought on Amazon, a, a decent brush kit. Uh, and so far, you know, I'm surprised how much I enjoyed it. Like. My miniatures, I was like, man, these miniatures, um, I'm afraid to look like crap. I, I mean, I was a little mistakes assembling them. Things, like, don't line up in ways I want them to. The moment I applied the primer coat, uh, like, so many of the little problems vanished. Like, so many of the little things I was worried about, they immediately looked good. Uh, you know, once that had dried, I added another layer of base because the base red was, you know, to get, the, get a a texture going. So as the as regular paint won't apply to the plastic well, so you got to get a base on there so you can paint on the paint. And you know, so I, I added a new layer of, of different red. I went from, um, let's see, I went from Abaddon red to corn red. Uh, corn being the god of murder and death in the Warhammer universe. <laughs> um, and then I started adding blacks. And I'm going to start, you know, going layer by layer. The idea is you want to um, get, all your, get as many figures in front of you as you can, break out one color, and then try to do as many of that color on each figure as you can so it all dries at the same time. And, you know, 
I, three hours just vanished. Like I, the time just flew away. Like, um, the uh, times I could have been thinking about food. I could have been thinking about breaking my diet. I was instead painting. And you know what? For my first time, and even though they're not done yet, I'm very proud of how they look so far. Uh, it's requiring a lot of attention to detail and a lot of work. I'm going to do more painting tonight, hopefully. Uh, I'll be posting all this on Instagram, of course. But I am pleasantly surprised by how good it all looks. How Not how easy it is, but how like easy it is to get started once you kind of get over the hump. I mean, it's definitely an expensive hobby. In order to buy the initial paints I needed, it required me to spend a little bit of money. Um, but once I was in there... Uh, I feel like I feel really confident. I feel like I can actually create some figures that won't win any competitions. Like there are people out there who paint to win Games Workshop competitions and paint to like have their figures uh, featured in the rule books on the website. I'm I'm not going for that. I'm going for figures that will look good on the table for a game of Warhammer. And I think I feel I feel confident that I can do that now. And I'm as surprised as anybody that I feel that way. Very cool. Uh, Update us with your progress in future uh, water cooler episodes. Uh, HT, you finally got to uh, play Spider-Man? Yes. Um, So I talked last week about how I finally opened. I I got my PS4 and uh, set it up, but I did not crack open the Spider-Man game. But I finally did this weekend. And uh, as I was playing, I realized that I am woefully out of practice with playing video games. And that the last time I properly played a console game outside of like party games like... um, uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of the game I was playing. Outside of just like party games, um, I haven't played probably since like Kingdom Hearts 2, like 12 years ago back on the PS2. So this is a little bit out of my um, ability and I was a little bit um, frustrated for a little, but it was fun. And like the world, the graphics are amazing. The world is so great. And um, the gameplay I'm still getting used to because there's just some... It's a little more um, complex than I'm used to, but I, I, I like it so far. Very cool. Um, th- I guess that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, not that this isn't a long episode. It, it's about uh, on par. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be recording the – I'm going to be joining the Slash Filmcast for their 500th episode, celebrating 10 years of the Slash Filmcast. Uh, I'm not sure when that is going to be on their feed, but – Please check that out when, uh, when when it goes on the feed. We're going to be talking about our top five films of the last 10 years, which I might ask you guys in a future episode, episode on this podcast, because I feel like that's that's a fun and uh, really, really nerve-wracking uh, experience, trying to narrow down 10 years of movies to five films. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Um, but, but yeah, that explains why I've been rating and ranking movies on Letterboxd the last couple weeks. Um, but anyways, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please... Send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. If you're looking for life advice from Chris, that is also the email address. And please go to our iTunes page. Write us a couple sentences. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob? Do you know what time it is? Uh, yeah. It's, it's time for me to open the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. And I have a particularly compelling chapter today. I opened up just now. And I don't know why you would need these insults, but there's an entire chapter dedicated to nudists.
<laughs> I mean, maybe someday you'll find yourself in a nudist colony and you need to be equipped. Yeah. Like, uh, like for example, Peter, I hear that you just grin and bear it. <laughs> Wait, is that even an insult? I, I don't know, but it's true. Uh, let's see. And HT, she goes coatless and hatless with trousers to match. <laughs> Wait, yes, I don't understand these jokes. I don't. Uh, I'm now worried that we need an HR director here at Slash Round. <laughs> well, I hear that Brad is suffering from claustrophobia. Like, like, I mean, like, I don't like wearing clothes. No, you're I, terrified of them. These are insulting nudists for being nudists. I mean, like, I don't, I, I don't mind not wearing clothes. I guess sometimes. Well, Ben is wrapped up only in himself. <laughs> That's about right. Um, let's see. Chris, he's the nudist camp athlete. He runs 100 yards in nothing. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for this incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> bonus segment, Jacob. I, I'm sure everybody out there has loved this segment, Jacob. <laughs> well, the, the book chose to see, not me. I don't pick these in advance, guys. Like You think I'm like plotting this now i open the book on mike i find the page and that's the page i read i mean to the left of this page is is this section called meanies but i think we'd all rather be nudists than meanies what's, what's going to happen when we record so many episodes that you open to a page and like we've read it before i pick a new page and let fate take me 